the LifeSpring family of podcasts is brought to you in part by AMD Live. AMD Live brings digital entertainment to life. LifeSpring number 134. The LifeSpring Time Machine, part one. What's he talking about today? Time machine. <laughs> ah, yeah. So what am I talking about today? Well, hang on. You're going to find out. First, let me say welcome. Welcome to Life Spring. My name is Steve Webb. I'm your host, and it is so good to have you here today. I've got a really special treat for you today, actually. Nearly two years ago, I had the privilege of meeting with Michael Francis. Who's Michael Francis? Well, he's the guy with an absolutely fascinating tale to tell. That's why I'm running the interview again. I'm sure that there are many of you listening right now who are new to the show since July of 2005. And I thought this story needed to be told again. And then after the conversation, I have a few other things to talk about. So be sure you hang on for that as well. One more thing I'd like to say before we talk to Michael. I just want to remind you to go to the LifeSpring show notes page at LifespringPodcast.com and click on the AMD banner that you'll see there. AMD has been so good to us by sponsoring the show, to be sure. But you need to know that I, I, I brought them on because I really like the company and I think that they've got some fantastic products. Uh, they've got some really powerful media center systems that are going to make uh, enjoying your music, your movies, and your photos so easy. And they've got some great free software for you as well. So click on the AMD banner at LifespringPodcast.com, and I'll really appreciate it. So without any further delay, let's jump into the LifeSpring time machine and go back to June of 2005. Oh boy, today is one for the books. Last week, I hinted to you that this edition of the LifeSpring Podcast had something to do with an offer you can't refuse. Just wait. You are in for a fascinating ride. Now, my guest today was at one time the primary target of a massive 14-agency government task force that had one assignment, to bring down the mafia's youngest and most financially powerful new superstar. At the height of his mob activity, he was one of the biggest money earners the mob had seen since Al Capone. He earned billions of dollars for New York City's Colombo crime family, for which they paid him millions of dollars per week. At the age of 35, he was number 18 on Fortune magazine's list of the 50 most wealthy and powerful mafia bosses in America. Michael Francis has a story that is completely and totally unique. His enemies included Rudy Giuliani and John Gotti, both of whom he was able to foil. But there was one who would bring his life as a prince of the mafia to an end, making him the only high-ranking official of the mafia to ever quit the mob, refuse government protection, and live to tell about it. I met Michael Franzese last week at a little bistro in a beach community here in Southern California. We shared a small outdoor table next to a busy street. You'll hear the cars driving by, you'll hear the landscape maintenance crews, and people at surrounding tables. It was a typical Southern California June morning. It started with gray, overcast skies that we call June gloom here in Southern California. But as the morning progressed, the clouds cleared until the sky was a brilliant blue. The temperature started at about 60 degrees Fahrenheit and warmed up oh, 15 or so degrees by the time we said our goodbyes later in the morning. 
Now, as I waited for Michael to arrive, I couldn't help but remember the movies that I've seen about Mafia Dons and their meetings, with long black stretch limos driving up to the curb, some goon jumping out of the front seat to open the back door for their sharply dressed boss. And I knew this was not likely to happen on this particular morning, and I was right. When Michael Francis arrived, he was driving his own black SUV, and he was wearing a Notre Dame jersey and Levi's. But there was no mistaking him for anyone else either. He has the look. He has the dark, handsome features that you would expect of a mafia boss. There's perfectly combed black hair, a million-dollar smile, and the easygoing charm of a man comfortable with himself. Any jitters I may have had waiting for him to arrive quickly melted away as he warmly shook my hand when he arrived at our table. We spoke for a couple of minutes, and after getting a really tasty pastry and a cup of the house latte, I turned the recorder on. What you are about to hear is the nearly unedited conversation I had with Michael Francis. The only editing that took place was to enhance the sound, and uh, he, he took a phone call at one point in the conversation, and I took that part of it out. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Francis. Well, I'm with Michael Franzese. Is that the, the correct pronunciation? Yes. Franzese. Yes. Because I, I saw on your your website uh, one of somebody introduced you as Franzese, and I thought eh, that's probably not right. Which is the more correct? Actually, that's correct. Also, it's oh, it more is. it's more the Italian way of saying it. Okay. Because it's spelled Z-E-S-E at the end. Right. But we Americanize it. It's Franzese. Makes it easy. Okay. Either way will work. Either way. Okay. Well, Michael. Can you tell me just a little bit of your, your history as to uh, how you came to where you are today? Yeah, my uh, background, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, uh, a little different than most people, I think, in that my dad was uh, heavily involved and in, in a, a member of a major crime family back there, Colombo Organized Crime Family, the Cosa Nostra family. And uh, I grew up, you know, in that atmosphere. Um, like I said, significantly different than most of the people around me. I'd say. But, um, you know, my dad was great, and I uh, certainly loved him. He was a great father. Um, and uh, he didn't originally want that life for me. He wanted me to be a professional, be a doctor, go to school. And uh, I was on that course until um, he was indicted in the 60s for some very serious crimes and eventually went to prison for 50 years. Wow. And at about that time, I was a pre-med student at Hofstra University, and Joe Colombo, who was the boss of the Colombo family, was upset because his son was indicted, and he was claiming there was no mafia, there was no La Cosa Nostra, Italian-Americans were being harassed by the government, the FBI, and he, uh, he made us all come down to uh, 69th Street and 3rd Avenue in Manhattan and pick at the FBI building to stop the harassment. Right. I remember when that kind of thing was in yeah. the news a lot. No, it was it was major news every day in New right. York. And uh, I was excited, you know. I, I grew up disliking law enforcement, to say the least. And uh, I believed until this moment, uh, well, it's not a belief, it's a certainty that my dad was framed on that case. Really? Oh, yeah. It was a very bad case. You know, I say it all the time. We, we both did many, many things in our life that were against the law. Right. But that particular case, he was innocent of. And so I was, you know, I had a big resentment for law enforcement. I was down there every day. I saw this as a way to get my dad out of jail, maybe help him overturn his case. And I would uh, I'd leave Hofstra and go down, go into Manhattan and grab a sign and pick at the FBI every day. And um, how many of you were, were there? 
We started out with, uh, there was less than 100 the first day I went, and uh, it eventually, Joe Colombo turned this into the Italian-American Civil Rights League, and it ended up, we had several thousand people on the line for several months. Wow. And it consummated in a big, huge rally where there was well over 100,000 people in Columbus Circle. Is that right? Oh, yeah. And we, <laughs> we had two of them, actually, because it lasted about two years. And... Um, Joe Colombo was at the second one that we had was there was an assassination attempt on his life. You might remember he was shot. I was about ten feet away from him when it happened. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. It was uh, my first real experience like that. But uh, he was seriously wounded. Eventually died of the wounds. That was the end of the league. But during that time, I met a lot of my dad's friends, made guys that were part of the life. And had now, a big when did you become aware of your dad's involvement in? in the family or the well, life or however you refer to it. You had to be living in a vacuum not to know it because my dad in, in the 60s, he was kind of the John Gotti in terms of law enforcement um, investigations and media attention. He okay. was always in the news and you know they wrote everything you could imagine about him. He was an enforcer, he was the underboss, he was the heir apparent to the Colombo family throne, all that stuff. So, I mean, my dad never sat down and told me a thing. Right. Everything I heard was from outsiders and from reading the newspaper, hearing it on the news. Okay. But I was totally aware of it. Right. Uh, I had a graduation party from high school, and uh, my dad put up a big tent in the backyard. We had about 500 people there, and all my friends from school. And within the next couple of days, I go back to school, and everybody got a subpoena. Whoever, whoever drove their car to the, in my neighborhood, right. they took the license plate number down at cops and they, uh, they gave everybody a subpoena to go to court to ask them what they were doing at my house. <laughs> so things like that happened regularly, you know. Yeah. But, uh, so I mean, I knew, but uh, didn't care. I mean, okay. I loved my dad and right. I didn't care what I read. You know, law enforcement to me was the enemy anyhow. They were lying all the time. So that's how the mentality I had when I okay. grew up. But, um, you know, while walking on that line and, and meeting a lot of my dad's friends, that had a big influence on me. You know, why are you going to school? Did you realize who your father is? You got to get on the street. You got to help him out. That's what life's really all about. Just the opposite of what my dad had taught me. Right. And uh, eventually I went to see him. He was in Leavenworth Penitentiary. And I went to see him. I used to visit him monthly. And I said, I don't want to go to school anymore. You know, I, I, I need to get out and help you get out of jail. And he, he, he was upset. He wasn't happy with that decision at all. But he knew my mind was made up. And, um, you know, what he said to me is, I remember like yesterday, if you need to be on the street, and you got to be on the street the right way, his mind the right way was to become part of his life. Right. That was kind of the start for me. Okay. I was 23 years old. Okay. All right. And so from what I under, what I remember from your talk at Spirit West Coast is you, you went through a bit of a, an apprenticeship. Yeah. What my dad told me, he said, this was his instruction uh, to me about the life. He said, go home, somebody will meet you, just do whatever you're told. <laughs> that was my education from my dad about the life. Right. Never uh, never got into detail, never told me this is what it's all about, never warned me. You know, he asked me one question, he said, if you had to do something serious, do you think you're capable of doing it? I said, if I had to do it, I guess I could do it. And that was my response. And that was that was my qualification in my dad's eyes. But, you know, I guess he knew knew me all my life. So, um, now he, um, so within a couple of weeks, the captain and the family came and picked me up and brought me down to see the new boss because Joe Colombo had been assassinated. And uh, I met with him, and he said to me, basically, 
I got a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of the life? I said, yeah, if that's what my dad wants, that's what I want. He got irritated with me. He said, this is not your dad's decision. It's yours. Right. Is this what you want? I said, yeah. You know, it's what I want. You know, blind, for me, it was blind faith. Dad said to do it, I'm ready. And um, so from that point on, what he said to me is, uh, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family. That means if your mother is sick and dying, you're at her deathbed, family calls you to service, you leave your mother's side and you come to serve the family because we're number one in your life from now on. And uh, he said if we, when we believe or if we believe that you've earned the privilege or the honor to become a member, we'll let you know. And that was my instruction. And uh, for the next, for the next, I guess, year and a half, I was in kind of like a pledge period where I had to do whatever I was told to do, you know, from a menial test to something serious and and everything in between, Steve. And uh, after about a year and a half, I was called into a room again. It was late. It was happened to be Halloween night, 1975. Just a coincidence. And uh, it was on that night that I took an oath and became a made member of the Colombo Crime Family. I was 20, 24 years old. Now, what what does that mean to be a made member? That's that's your official designation when you take the <coughs> excuse me take the oath and become a member. Okay. That's the terminology. It's uh, you're a made man. Okay. You've been straightened out. Okay. Yeah. That's right. ironic. And you're a made man. Interesting. Okay. So uh, I was it was myself and five other gentlemen that night that uh, that were inducted. We did it one at a time. And I took an oath that night, and uh, it was serious. I mean, the boss was in there with all the officials, underboss, the consigliere, all the captains, and. Um, I held out my hand in front of the boss who cut my finger, blood dropped on the floor. And uh, I cupped my hands and took a picture of the saint. It was a Catholic altar card, put it in there, and the uh, underboss lit it. Burned, but it just burnt up really quick. It wasn't, didn't hurt. But, uh, and the boss said to me that night, and this is what I repeat over and over, because it was startling to me that growing up a Catholic, being in Catholic school my whole life, an altar boy, I had never heard this term, but he said, tonight you are being born again into La Cosa Nostra, into this thing of ours, a new life. And um, I didn't realize the significance of born again born at again. that moment. I just, you know, you're born again. You're a new man. And um, he said, if you violate the oath you take or betray your brothers in this life, then you're going to burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Wow. And uh, he said, do you accept? And I said, yes, I do. Now, those weren't just words to you, though, were they? Or yeah, what, it, it, it felt like a, a an oath to you. I mean, you weren't just saying it. No, no, it was uh, it was very. I mean, it's look. I took it very seriously then. I take it very seriously today. That's a serious life. I mean, you're you're committing your life to a whole new lifestyle. Right. I mean, it's it's a, contrary to the life we normal people would live. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, you're living. You're violating the laws of God and man on a daily basis. I mean, that's the philosophy. That's what's behind it. And, uh, you know, th that life is not, people think it's a, it's a business and it's a job. It's not a job, it's a way of life. It's a whole new culture that you're entering. It's got its own set of rules, its own philosophy, its own punishment, its own consequences. So it's very serious. Right. And uh, I, I realized it at that moment. If you didn't realize it up until then, you realize it then. Okay. Um, 
but you know that was the start of it for me and uh, you know at that point I became very motivated really to do two things one was to get my dad out of prison right and secondly was to uh, was to make money because my dad had explained to me in that life money translates to power and you want to succeed in the life you got to got to bring in money. Right. Basically that's it. And I was driven to do both of those things and, and ended up accomplishing both. And then I made a lot of money and uh, family was happy with that. Right. And I got my dad out of prison on parole. I certainly contributed to it. I wouldn't say I was the deciding factor, but I, I did a lot of the work in finally getting him out on parole. Wow. So, I mean, in, that, in terms of that, it was pretty successful. So, uh, how long was it before you were able to get him out on parole? He did, um, he did 10 years the first time, and then he was paroled. Okay. So, 10 years on 50 was pretty good back then. Uh, but since then, he's been, my dad's 86, he's done about 29 years since 1970. Wow. Because he violated his parole four times each time for associating with other criminals. Okay. And um, he got various sentences, you know, on his on his parole violations. Eight years, three years, four years, two years. So he's done an accumulation of time over the years. Wow. So he's still alive? He's still alive, yeah. Okay. And is, is he still in New York? He is. Is his health good? Very good. Yeah, he's in good shape. He, uh, he made the prison time work for him and that he stayed in shape during that time. Uh-huh. Okay. But, um, and we, you know, it's an interesting relationship. I mean, when all of these things occurred and I renounced the life publicly, uh, he and I didn't speak for 10 years. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, it was dangerous because the, the word on the street was I was going to become a witness because you don't just renounce the life and do nothing. Everybody naturally assumes that the next step is you're going to go around testifying against everybody. Right. And, um, so that was a dangerous situation both for me and him because he sponsored me. He proposed me into the life. And okay. When you bring somebody in like that, you know, you're in jeopardy if he goes bad, so to speak. Right. So we, uh, when this was occurring, before it occurred, I had sent him a message. We were both in prison. And I told him, Dad, uh, you're probably not going to understand what I'm going to do. But uh, my only uh, assurance to you is I'm not going to hurt anybody. Okay. And... Um, so he was able to take that and just say, I don't know what my son's doing, but he's not going to hurt anybody. Right. And until or unless I did hurt somebody, I guess, you know, even though it's uh, it's serious to renounce the life, you mm -hmm. don't do that. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, my dad had standing in the life. And he was in prison during some difficult times, so we were both able to survive what happened. Let's put it that way. Okay, so that was going to be one of my questions: is is how did you get out and survive? Because I've heard it said that there's there's only one way out. Steve, there's only one answer to that, and it's a it's an answer that I believe God has uh, laid a foundation for me because I speak in a lot of secular events, a lot of. Uh, Christian events, obviously, but no matter where I speak, when I speak, if I open it up for questions, the first question is, how are you still alive? Right. Because, quite honestly, you don't walk away from that life, not enter a witness protection program, or run away and live. It's never been done before, to my knowledge. I've never heard of it. Right. Um, and neither has anybody else. Right. That's why they've predicted my demise so many times, all law enforcement people and everything else. But 
it's very difficult to explain because so much, so many things occurred over the years. And when I look back, God navigated such a course for me that it, it only could be his hand in this. And I can describe incident after incident after incident um, that God had a different plan for me. Mm -hmm. And there's no other way. They can come up with all their different theories and you know every other thing that they want to say because right. if people don't want to face the truth, then they'll come up with, you know, sure, uh, like, like atheists do. Exactly. Know, every other reason. But um, the truth of the matter, God has just got his hand in all of this and he's protected. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and Proverbs 16, 7 says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, and sometimes I don't understand because I'm not always pleasing to the Lord. <laughs> I know that feeling. His enemies are at peace with him. And, uh, you know, that's been my that's been my inspiration from the very first time I read that verse, locked in a prison cell many years ago. Right. I said, if I can try to do the right thing as far as God's concerned, then maybe I can survive this. You might have a different plan for me. Having no idea what that plan was, having right. no idea where I was going to end up, had no clue what I was going to do when I got out of prison with all the things that were coming on me and people mad at me in the street and the government's trying to make a witness. They got contracts on me all over. They won't let me out in the yard because they're afraid I'm going to get killed. I spent almost three years in solitary. Wow. I mean, it, I had no idea what to do. I mean, I just had no clue. Mm -hmm. I, it, was a, it was finally after so many years of saying that I accepted Christ for self-serving reasons. Forgive me my sins. Okay, I'm going to accept you. Right. But never surrendering to him until I finally broke down and said, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm knowledgeable now in my Bible. I've read it. I believe in this. The evidence is there. This is the Word of God. And uh, I'm going to trust you. Yeah. And that's that's what it came down to for me. But that was a process, too, because yeah. I was pretty stubborn. Yeah. Well, I understand that part of it, too. <laughs> All right. So let's um, back up a little bit. Uh, how did you find yourself in prison? What happened there? Well, originally... I met my wife, a lady who's now my wife, yeah. who led me to the Lord. Right. That's part of the story I want to hear, too. So. Okay. Among many things that I was doing during that time, I was, like I said, successful financially. They made me a captain in uh, 1980 after five years of being a soldier. Okay. And uh, I was doing a lot of different things. I was very aggressive on the street. And um, I got met somebody, and I got into the movie business. Why not, you know? And uh, I was producing these B-movies, um, and during that time, it was the breakdance era. Okay. I love musicals. Okay. And uh, Leon Isaac Kennedy approached me about doing a breakdance movie. He was a big actor at the time in uh, penitentiary films and stuff like that. So I said, okay, if we can shoot the film in Florida, I'll do it, because I used to like to stay in Florida. And uh, we did that. We brought in 50 dancers from L.A. to be the core dancers in the film, and then we used local people for the rest. And one of the gals on the set was this 19-year-old little girl, Camille Garcia, that I met poolside one day. Mm -hmm. And uh, she just blew me away as far as her looks were concerned. And I introduced myself to her as the producer and tried to meet her a few times for a cup of coffee. And she always was very courteous and said, okay, I'll meet you. And every time I went, she never showed up. <laughs> and she did that for quite some time. So. I was really, uh, you know, my interest was really at a peak then, but sure. one night uh, we had a cast meeting, and coming out of the meeting I saw her, and she was upset, she was crying, and, you know, I approached her, I said, what's wrong? She said, you know, I need to go home, um, I don't like what's going on on the movie set, first time I'm away from home, 
and uh, I'm a young Christian girl, and uh, things are not agreeing with me here. Uh -huh. I said, what do you mean? I'm a Catholic. Explain that to right, me. Right, right. I'd understand that. And, uh, you know, basically she, you know, Steve, she was just different. I mean, she, uh, she held herself differently. She just kind of stayed away from the pack, just did her thing and, and kind of, I mean, normal. She loved to dance and stuff like that. But, I mean, she just kept away from a lot of the things that go on a movie set. Right. And, uh, you know, long story short, uh, I fell in love with this girl and realized that, my life was a direct contradiction to everything that she believed in, because she would talk openly about Jesus to me, about accepting Christ and all of that, which, you know, I was, okay, that's great. I mean, I was really appeasing her more than anything else. You just wanted to be close to her. Yeah, I just wanted to be close and be nice to her and all of that, but, you know, I wasn't really buying into that at that point. Right. I mean, you know, you know, at that point you feel, I felt kind of I was the master of my own destiny. Right. I was making millions of dollars a week. Right. I was a captain in a Colombo cram. I had 300 guys under me. I went to trial five times. Rudy Giuliani indicted me on a major case. I beat all five cases. Um, Were they good cases? You just had better lawyers than them, or what? Giuliani's... You know, I don't think any of them were really good cases. It okay. was never a question where, you know, I mean, I was a major target. I had the name, I had the pedigree, and government was after me all the time. And, and there was sloppy cases they put against me. Okay. Giuliani's case, I should never have even been indicted. Wow. But, okay. uh, and it turned out, you know, well for me. I was a lead defendant, but it was a seven-month trial. And uh, anytime you're in, in a federal courthouse, it's serious. Especially then, like now, when they're giving you 20 years for a count on racketeering and they run them consecutive. Giuliani had told me at the time if I got convicted, he was going to give me double what my father got. Wow. He give me 100 years. So, I mean, it was serious, but I had a good track record. So, you know, it was better than me. You know, I got my own jet plane. I got a helicopter. I got a house in Florida, a house in L.A., a house in New York. Yeah. Now, you said you were making millions of dollars a week? Yeah. In the gas business. Wow. Which was uh, eventually what I was indicted for and pled guilty to. Okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, the allegation was that we, we defrauded the government out of $2 billion in gasoline taxes. So it was a big case. Wow. And, uh, my that was two billion with a B, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And my partner uh, Larry Irizzo uh, ended up testifying against me or cooperating against me. And, um, so you know, I mean, it was it was it would have been a tough case to win, but I don't know that I couldn't have won it because you know, Steve, they never they never had me directly involved with anything. Okay. And that was the problem with the government's cases. It was always a witness or hearsay. They never had me on tape that was damaging. They never had any kind of direct evidence like that. It was kind of them building the case around me. Right. And uh, But they tried so hard, and I think that's why I was fortunate. But um, realizing this case, I had not been indicted yet on this case when Camille and I met, but I knew it was coming. And, uh, you know, the amazing thing to me when I look back is that realizing my life was contradicting hers and that I loved her, all of a sudden, something that was never even on my radar screen, how am I going to move away from this life to be with her? Because she became more important. You know, in a way, I look back now, and the major influence in my life to that point had been my father. I mean, on, hands down. Right. And, and other guys in that life that I looked up to, that I wanted to emulate, you know, as a, as a soldier in that life. And uh, Camille came in and kind of took the place importance-wise in my life, she became more important. And I think that's how God started the 
change for me right. by letting this young woman come in and replace, you know, my dad in that life. And uh, so I started in my head trying to devise a way to move away from the life. So knowing this case coming down, believe it or not, out of, out of this horrible situation, I was saying, oh, this is good, you know. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll take a plea when this indictment comes down. I'll try to make an arrangement with the government. They've been trying to get me so long. If I took a plea, they'd probably go along with it. Right. Try to get a minimum amount of time I can. Right. And, uh, and this was the plan. So I eventually was indicted. Long story short, uh, made a deal to plead a racketeering. A 10-year sentence, $15 million restitution. I surrender a lot of my assets and the plane and all that kind of stuff. Can I answer this? Sure, absolutely. So I can get my family. No, it's my wife. Okay, where was it? Oh, so you're going to take the plea. I'm going to take the plea. I told Camille, I said, listen, um, I'm going to have to do some time, maybe five years. And her response to that... Well, to hear Camille's response to this news that Michael is about to go down for what would be a 10-year sentence, you'll have to listen to next week's LifeSpring podcast. There's still much of his story to tell, and you won't want to miss any of it. You'll hear about his prison years, the threat to his life, his parole, and return to prison where he did more than two years in solitary confinement. And you'll hear about what Michael Franzese is doing today. It's an amazing story. And if you just can't wait to hear the rest of Michael's story or for more details on his life, you can buy Michael's autobiography called Blood Covenant at michaelfranzese.com. Or there's also a link at the show notes page where you can buy the book, too. Compelling reading, to be sure. That's Blood Covenant. Now, show notes are at lifespringpodcast.com. You'll find a link to Michael's website there where you'll also find a video that you can watch about Michael, too. All right, I got an email from a friend of mine in podcasting who said, Hey, Steve, would you mind uh, mentioning on your next show that I'm looking for sponsors for the Easter Seals Week? The individual goal is $150, but I think I can raise more if the word gets out. Thanks for helping. And that's from Ken. So, Ken, here you go. I'm re reading your email. And, guys, if you believe in Easter Seals and if you would help Ken raise some money, go to the LifeSpring show notes page and you'll find the link there. And I'm just going to call it Ken's Easter Seals. You just click on that, and, and that'll take you to the pledge site for Easter Seals that uh, Ken has set up. Are you listening and sent? Uh, come on, Fidget, type faster. <laughs> We're reviewing all these podcasts for the Dancing with Elephants Let Them Hear You contest. The more podcasts we review, the more entries we get, and the better chance we have to win the grand prize. <laughs> What's the grand prize? The grand prize is a prize package containing a bunch of CDs, including seasons one through four of the Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd, the Three Blind Mice's CD, Good Grief, and Jonathan Colton's Where Tradition Meets Tomorrow. And not only that, it also includes an Apple iPod shuffle and Marware's USB travel dock for the shuffle. But all those things are irrelevant. The grand prize winner also gets a year membership to the Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd Imagination Nation at ImaginationRanger.com. Oh, I don't know, 
And if I win, Dr. Floyd will have no choice but to give me one of those glow-in-the-dark secret decoder rings to decode all his messages. Oh, it's so easy to enter, too. All you have to do is write a 20-word review for your favorite podcast at a podcast review site and end the review with the phrase, Are you listening? And then send the email with your review to dwithecontest at gmail.com. The deadline is coming up fast, though. We only have till May 11th at 11.59 p.m. U.S. Central Time. So no lollygagging. Finish up that review for 101 uses for baby wipes. Then I guess you might as well go leave one for Don and Drew, too. Will Dr. Steve succeed in his evil plan of winning the grand prize in the Dancing with Elephants Let Them Hear You contest? Or will you defeat Dr. Steve by submitting your own entries for the contest? All the info you need is at www.dwithe.com. Hurry, time is running out. And now with that great promo, then the podcast of the week has got to be The Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd. You know, The Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd is the Internet's longest-running, professionally produced, family-friendly podcast. Though the show was broadcast over the Internet in April of 2004, it wasn't until the advent of podcasting that the show took on the status it now enjoys. They are one of podcasting's most popular podcasts. The Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd has steadily built listenership with wacky tales of the world's most brilliant scientist, Dr. Floyd, as he races through history, hot on the heels of his arch-nemesis, Dr. Steve. The show's breaking ground in this world of family entertainment and is in development as a TV show and feature film. The Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd is a weekly, five-minute, family-friendly show that combines the fast-paced episode hilarity of Rocky and Bullwinkle... (laughs) and the imagination-inducing power of the old-time radio. It's Stan Freeberg, Jay Ward, Mystery Science Theater, Prairie Home Companion, and Sesame Street all rolled up into one. So check that out. I will have a link on the show notes page for the radio adventures of Dr. Floyd. They're good guys. I've met them all. As a matter of fact, I was even in one of their episodes at the Podcast Expo in 2005. I actually held the applause sign for the live audience. <laughs> And for website of the week, go to quiz.com. I don't remember where I first saw this one, but uh, they've got all kinds of different quizzes over there, fun quizzes at go to quiz.com. Uh, the one that I first took was whether or not I have an accent. And uh, I went through the quiz and I found out that I have a, a pure Western accent as far as, you know, Western United States. And uh, so, you know, there you might find out that you have an Eastern accent or, or what have you. So go check it out. There's other quizzes there, too. Being a Southern California person, I took the Southern California quiz, and sure enough, I quizzed out it being like 79% Southern Californian, which is funny. I should be 100% since I was <laughs> born and raised here. Now, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at steve.lifespring at gmail.com. That's a good place to send your email. But even better is to do a voicemail at 206-350-CALL. Or if you don't have the little numbers on your keypad, that's 206-350-2255. I really enjoy getting your audio comments, and every once in a while, I'll even play one. I've got one coming up on the music show this week from a listener by the name of Kevin. That's a great way, by the way, to get your Ask Steve question in. If you have a question on doctrine or on religion or the Bible or what have you, call it in. Oh, one more thing before I get out of here. Don't forget Mother's Day. In addition to having a a house full of relatives over here, both uh, my side of the family and Leanne's side of the family, 
we've got Carmen Tyler and her mom coming over to the to the house this weekend as well. So that's going to be fun. Check out the other shows in the LifeSpring podcast family. My middle son, Stephen, has started a brand new show called LifeSpring on the Edge. If you like hardcore music, that's a good one to listen to because, man, it is... <laughs> It's the kind of stuff that will just make you want to, uh, well, listen to the show and you'll see what you want to do. I don't know. But if, if you like hardcore, if you like metal, that's that's the place to go. Check that out at LifespringPodcast.com. Well, thank you so much for being with me today. My name is Steve Webb. I'm your host, and I'll see you next time. This has been an In Touch Productions podcast. The best and the brightest served up daily by the sharpest minds in content delivery, Podshow and Limelight. 